In a world ruled by emotion, where reason is abandoned, God is forsaken, and history forgotten, two brave men will attempt to do the unthinkable. Use their brains. Armed with ancient wisdom, they will bring light into our modern world. This is the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to the Sons of Antiquity podcast. I'm your host Daniel, and I'm joined in this lovely studio by my co-host Evan. How's it going? Today we will be talking about C.S. Lewis, the man, the myth, and the legend. And we will be talking uh, pretty extensively about his works. So let's dive right into what exactly we will be covering. Who was C.S. Lewis? We'll give you a brief introduction, and then we'll go into a biography of the man's life. We'll talk about his relationship with J.R.R. Tolkien, and then we will go through the Chronicles of Narnia and give you some summaries and uh, an analysis of those books. And then we'll talk about The Great Divorce, give you an analysis on that. That was a uh, one of his popular works. And then we'll talk about The Screwtape Letters. Then we'll cover some of his other works, maybe some lesser known ones. Then we will ask, what impact has C.S. Lewis had on our modern culture? and on Christianity. And finally, we will wrap it up by talking about our favorite works. Please note this episode will have many spoilers. So if you haven't read it and you want to, especially the fiction, please skip those sections. So let's start off. Uh, Who was C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis was more than just an author of popular books, including the immensely popular children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia. He was an educated man and an educator himself. He was a lover of literature, He was on the cover of Time magazine, but maybe most importantly, Lewis was a man who abandoned his faith and rediscovered it and even went on to become one of the 20th century's most influential Christians. So now let's get into a bigger biography of Lewis. Clive Staples Lewis was born on November 29, 1898 in Belfast, Ireland. His mother, Florence, died when he was only nine years old. That same year, he was sent to a one-year school in Watford, Hertfordshire, England. Over the next few years, he would enroll in various other schools, but by age 13, he would abandon his Christian faith. Now, Belfast is in Northern Ireland, isn't it? I do believe so. Okay. So that shaped him being a strong, from a strong Anglican family, we can say. Written letters from this period of his life reveal that Lewis had been swept up in the scientific and psychoanalytic explanations for religion that were emerging in the early 20th century. Freud was in, Aquinas was out. He wrote to a friend, criticizing him for believing in biblical accounts, and compared those stories to those of the ancient Greeks or Romans, equating Jesus to Loki or Dionysius. Superstition, of course, in every age has held the common people, Lewis once wrote, but in every age the educated and thinking ones have stood outside it. I must say that that is quite neckbeard-like. Yeah, he probably tipped his fedora right after he wrote that. (laughs) He also thought that he was a master poet, but he published his first work and nobody read it. <laughs> but, has, has it gained popularity because it's so bad? I don't know. Hmm, we, we should dive a little bit deeper into that at a later date. Anyways, he conceded that science hadn't uncovered all knowledge, but said, In the meantime, I am not going to go back to the bondage of believing in any old and already decaying superstition. And that's, that's fair, I would say. It's kind of like the uh, God of the Gaps fallacy. Believing. Explain that. Well, God, the God of the gaps fallacy is saying, well, we don't know how this works, so God did it. But it's a fair critique that atheists give to Christians. 
you would actually concede that, that that's a fair. It critique. can be, but it, oftentimes it's misapplied. Okay, fair enough. For years, Lewis held on to these beliefs. In 1916, he received a scholarship to University College, Oxford. In June of the following year, he enlisted in the British Army. In April of 1918, he became wounded in the Battle of Arras, which was a major offensive move by the Allies against the Germans in northern France, involving heavy artillery bombardment. Later that same year, in December, Lewis was discharged from the Army. Within a year of returning to civilian life, Lewis published his first work, Spirits in Bondage, under the pseudonym Clive Hamilton. In 1925, he was appointed English Fellow of uh, Magdalen College, Oxford, where he would tutor English language and literature. In May of 1926, he met J.R.R. Tolkien, a man you might have heard of, who would become his lifelong friend. Over the next several years, Lewis published uh, another work, Dimer, as Clive Hamilton. His father died in Belfast, and he slowly warmed up to the idea of returning to theism. But it wasn't until one fateful day in 1931 that Lewis was truly led back to Christianity with the help of his friend. While taking a walk along the river Cherwell near Magdalen College in September of 1931, Lewis and Tolkien's conversation veered onto the topic of mythology, specifically the importance and meaning of myth as it relates to religion and the human experience at large. This is no surprise, considering both men were well-versed in the subject, and Tolkien himself was an expert on ancient and medieval mythology, especially those of Anglo-Saxon origin. And if you read Lord of the Rings, you can definitely see how that was a major influence in his work. Lewis recounts this moment in more detail in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, but we'll sum it up here. Tolkien argued that myths were not lies, but imitations of something more real, a spiritual truth. He pointed out that Lewis was often stirred by the details of certain myths. He said, When you meet a god sacrificing himself in a pagan story, you like it very much. You are mysteriously moved by it. Lewis acknowledged this. Certain heroic tales or stories uh, with sacrifices of, or with themes of self-sacrifice hit him right in the feels, just not when he read them in the Bible. But Tolkien then added that the pagan stories were pieces of a larger truth, and the story of Jesus' life, crucifixion, and return were a kind of myth, except it really happened. This seemed to persuade Lewis, who, over the next few years, would convert to Christianity. With the conversion came a growing belief that God wanted him to write, and write he did. As his fame grew, he saw a sharp increase in the mail he received, yet he remained, remained humble and dedicated much of his time to answering nearly every letter personally. Lewis also took opportunities to interact with colleagues, peers, news personalities, interviewers, fans, military servicemen, and other people interested in his work in order to evangelize. Now, I'd like to add right here, that was one of the most impressive things that I found out about C.S. Lewis, that he wrote personally uh, to so many people, that he responded to those letters himself. You know, He didn't pay someone. He could have easily paid someone to just sign his name or send some you know, standardized reply, but he really tried to actually interact with all of his fans on a personal basis, which I think is really cool. Yeah, both him and Tolkien pretty much did that. And honestly, Lord of the Rings, a lot of the questions that were asked by fans, the only reason we have an answer is because Tolkien answered that fan and they kept it and we know it today. Oh, interesting. So like details about the universe? Uh, Yeah. Like what happened to the Entwives? (laughs) 
The ant wives. The little trees. Oh, yes, yes. The ants were the, the tree people. Yeah, the ant What wives. did happen to the ant wives? Tolkien responded and said, you know, I, I really don't know. Hmm. Because he, was, he wasn't like a J.K. Rowling, just like the total master of the story. He was just, he portrayed it almost as if he was telling the story as he heard it. So I guess what you're trying to say is that the ant wives were actually gay black women. <laughs> <laughs> I digress. He didn't say they weren't. Uh, okay. It's, it's open to okay. your interpretation as the reader. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't until the 40s that Lewis's writing career really took off, and when it did, book royalties made him a much wealthier man. In response, Lewis started charitable funds and gave money to orphans, church ministries, and impoverished families. He worked hard to keep the extent of his charity a secret, so our knowledge of it is limited. Throughout the 40s and 50s, Lewis wrote and published a, a ton of books, too many to list here. From 1950 to 1956, he penned the Narnia series, starting with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which was originally intended to be a one-off story. Then he convinced himself to write a sequel, Prince Caspian, followed by Dawn Treader and Silver Chair. He went back and filled in some of backstory with The Horse and His Boy and The Magician's Nephew, and finally tied it all together with The Last Battle. While writing the Narnia series, he got to know a woman and fan of his work named Joy Davidman. Their friendship grew into love, and at age 59, he married her. Now, I actually heard it wasn't love at first. No, not at first. They, you know, they kind of had a friendship, or it was like a fan and and famous think, person relationship. Then they were just kind of friends. Yeah, I think when they married, it was more like a green card marriage to get her to be a citizen of UK. Really? That's what I heard. I, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that was an element to it, but based on personal writings, some of the ones that I saw, some quotes from him, uh, he seemed like he was very happy, and he I think he even once said that it was strange having the same feelings at almost 60 years old that you know a man in his 20s would have, and, and like going through that same stage of life so much later. Uh, he just thought it was kind I, of no, interesting. He grew, he grew to love her over time, but I think at first it was just perhaps you know, yeah legal reasons. She was 16 years younger than him, Jewish-American, divorced with two sons, but he was very happy. Though some of his friends did not approve of her, like Tolkien. I'll mention that later. She was a big inspiration of his book, Till We Have Faces, and he even told a friend she was basically the co-author. She died of cancer in 1960, which was which left a heartbroken C.S. Lewis. Mm. Lewis died on the same day JFK was assassinated, November 22, 1963, just one week before his 65th birthday. So what was his relationship with J.R.R. Tolkien? C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were both in the English faculty at Oxford. After their first encounter, Lewis's first impression of Tolkien was a smooth, pale, fluent little chap who only needs a smack or so. And did he really mean like just a slap around? Oh, okay. Put him in his place. Yeah, sure, sure. However, their mutual interest in language, poetry, and myth cemented a lifelong friendship. They both hated modernity. For example, refusing to drive cars. Now that's that's pretty based right there. When you're such a Chad that you don't even drive a car. You know, it's you you might even say they were the original sons of antiquity. Some might say. I guess we are definitely just twins to them. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I'm not saying that we're Tolkien and Lewis, but I mean we're kind of Tolkien and Lewis, right? Right? Bueller? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. They also endured the trenches of World War I and went through childhood trauma, so they had a lot of shared uh, life experiences. 
They joined separate departments. Lewis was in literature. Tolkien was in philology. But Lewis encouraged Tolkien as he wrote and tried to publish a weird set of books that we call The Lord of the Rings. Nothing really ever came of them, though. Uh, Tolkien was not too respected amongst his colleagues due to his fantasy books. By the 1940s, Lewis was more popular and respected than his quaint colleague, and rivalry came about. Tolkien didn't care much for the Narnia series, implying that it was unoriginal and too allegorical. Lewis accused Tolkien of perfectionism and pride. Lewis converted from atheism to Anglicanism, but Tolkien, a Catholic, was unsatisfied. Lewis also married a divorced American, furthering the split. Their petty bickering led to a falling out. But in the end, they both have lived on in different ways. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is loved by all kinds of people, even those who denounce Christianity, while Lewis is critical to modern Christian apologetics. Let's dive into his most famous set of works, The Chronicles of Narnia. The Chronicles of Narnia are by far his most well-known works. Spanning seven books, the story revolves around a family who, over the course of multiple years, travels to a magical land called Narnia, a mystical place parallel to our own world. The story is chock-full of Christian theology, imagery, and themes, and many key plot points serve as direct analogies to biblical events. The following summaries are presented in the chronological order of the story, not the order in which they are written. And also not the order in which they were published, because a lot of them were written, and then like it was there was some time before they were published, and they were published out of order, written out of order. But this is the order of events in the Narnian universe. I've actually heard you're supposed to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first, and then read Magician's Nephew. Uh, perhaps. Uh, I did not, so I can't speak to whether or not that's a better way to read them. But I think it's pretty easy to do. I, you know, they're kind of interchangeable as a first story, I think. Yeah, I agree. So let's we'll start off with book one, The Magician's Nephew. This is the origin story, you might even say the genesis, for the world of Narnia. The tale is set in England around the year 1900, and it follows a 12-year-old boy named Diggory and a girl named Polly as they become friends and get into a strange adventure. After exploring the attic space of their adjoining homes, they stumble into the study of Diggory's uncle, Andrew, a devious though quite pathetic, wannabe magician who uses Polly and Diggory as live test subjects for a set of odd magic rings he has created. Against their will, Andrew sends Polly and Diggory to a dying world called Charn, where they awaken an evil queen named Jadis. You later learn that she is the one who destroyed the world in order to win a bloody war. She tries to take over Earth and make Andrew her servant, but the children trick her and try to return her to Charn, accidentally landing in a different world altogether. A bright, new place just beginning. Jadis is triggered by the wholesomeness of the place and runs off. But the kids stick around and meet Aslan, the creator of Narnia. Basically, the Jesus figure. In the end, Aslan helps the kids return to the real world and helps Diggory heal his sick mother with a magic apple, which he later plants in the backyard of his home. It grows into a beautiful tree, and when it dies decades later, Diggory cuts it up and makes a wardrobe out of it. It's pretty obvious that the latter part of the story is an allegory of the creation of the world similar to Genesis. Aslan literally sings things into existence, just as God in Genesis speaks in order to create. Jadis is the serpent or Satan, though there are major flaws in that part of the allegory. The humans name the animals. However, the humans do not fall into sin with the fruit despite the temptation from Jadis. Also, as Lewis notes, magicians never come to a good end. They do not. Now on to book two, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Forty years later on Earth, 
Diggory has become a professor, but has grown old. During the Blitz in World War II, he hosts the four Pavenzi children at his home outside of London. Now, I could never figure out what relation they were to him or why they were there. Um, I think they were like nephews and nieces, right? Yeah, I, I always thought that they were family, but for some reason, none of the things I was reading online said anything. And I didn't, I should have cracked open the book to read the first few chapters to see, but I don't remember. So I, they're probably like family friends or distant family. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. So they're in the house hanging out with Diggory. And while playing games in his large home, the youngest girl, Lucy, discovers that the wardrobe that he built is actually a portal to Narnia. Eventually, she convinces all of the Pavenzi children to follow her, and they all end up in Narnia, befriending talking animals and other creatures. Narnia experiences time at a different rate than the real world, so in the 40 years since Diggory last visited, centuries have passed, including a full 100 years of perpetual winter with no Christmas, under the reign of the evil Jadis, now known as the White Witch. With the witch's magic waning and Father Christmas visiting for the first time in a long time to bring the kids some weapons, the children team up with Aslan to defeat the witch and they succeed, but not before she tries to turn Edmund, one of the children, against Aslan, and Aslan sacrifices himself to spare Edmund. Let me interject there. Sure. In that there's mentions between the White Witch and Aslan that there's some like ancient law that they have to observe. That's kind of a low-key reference to natural law. Yes. Yep. Yeah, isn't that where the meme comes from? Of don't quote the the old magic to me. I was there when it was oh, written or something old, like that. The old magic, yeah, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. That even God or Aslan has to abide by. Yeah, so there's some some sort of bedrock natural order that even he has to has to obey. Yeah, because he he would created the old magic, so he abides by it. Ah, I see. Uh, since Aslan is basically God or Jesus, he uses cheat codes, so to speak, to come back to life, and the Narnian army defeats the witch, and Aslan kills her. The children become kings and queens of Narnia. They reign for a while, they grow up, and they forget about the real world. Until one day, they accidentally travel back through the wardrobe and end up in England again, with no time having passed. They tell Diggory about it, and he promises them that they will return to Narnia again someday. Now, there couldn't be a clear allegory to Jesus and his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. What, what Aslan goes through is, is basically that. 100%. And I will say that's kind of a flaw of the whole book, and that's just so obvious. It goes back to what Tolkien said. Like, the other ones are less obvious, but this one's like, if you know anything about anything, you know what this story is trying to compare itself to. Yeah, he could have been a little bit more subtle. I agree. Third book, The Horse and His Boy. This is the red-headed stepchild of the series, as it does not feature Diggory or the children directly. It mainly deals with Narnian geopolitics during the reign of the four Pavensi children, as seen through the eyes of a young servant boy named Shasta. Shasta is about to be sold into slavery, so he decides to escape with his talking horse, Bree, who was taken from Narnia originally. Along the way, they meet a girl named Erevis and her own talking horse, Quinn. Emphasis on the... <laughs> After a lot of running around and eavesdropping and hearing about secret plots, takeovers, and plans to kidnap Queen Susan, the four characters set out across the desert to warn the land of Archenland about an imminent invasion and the threat to Narnia. This information helps the Archenland people prepare a decent defense until Edmund and Lucy's reinforcements arrive to defeat the invaders. So we skipped a lot of the part about them going to the capital city 
of this caliphate, you might say. Uh, yeah, of, the Kalerman Caliphate. Yeah, perhaps? Kalerman. That's the land, but their their capital. They have some adventures where they they meet the four princesses and princes of, or the the kings and queens of Narnia that we just mentioned. But it, it's a lot of like, it, it's not pertinent to the story. Aslan shows up to the battle and settles things by turning the invading forces leader into a donkey for a period of time. Then it is revealed that Shasta is actually the long-lost twin of the heir to the Archenland throne, and he fulfills an ancient prophecy. His brother doesn't want to be a prince, so Shasta takes the job and marries Erebus. Daniel says he likes this book because it portrays Arabs in a negative light. Yeah, that was, a, that was one of the highlights of this story. Although I will say they weren't Muslims. Because, yeah, they weren't Muslims. Because they're Arabs. polytheistic. They were Arabs. Yeah. I surprisingly like the book after I thought about it because it portrays many theological concepts in a less direct way than book two. For example, we find out that Shasta's crazy journey through life was actually overseen and subtly influenced by Aslan. We never knew he was there until he explained it later. That was my favorite part of the whole story. Aslan was the one who guided him to his foster father instead of having him die in that boat. He's the one who brought Shasta and Erevis together in their journey. He protected Shasta in the desert, and he kept him from falling off the cliff in Archenland when he was by himself. God is at work in our lives, though often too quietly to be noticed at the moment. There's also a scene where Aslan corrects the horse's Gnosticism by showing that a physical body is not below Aslan's dignity. And he, has, he goes up to him, he says, touch my fur, touch my paw. It's very much like Jesus going up to Thomas and saying, touch my wounds. Oh. So that was a big allegory there too. Not to mention there's a monk in the wilderness too. The battle scene brought images to my mind of the Battle of Vienna, the infamous one. I believe 1863 or so, where the Muslims were besieging the city and the Poles swept in on them from outside the walls, causing them to retreat back to where they came from. Now on to book four, Prince Caspian, The Return to Narnia. One year after their first adventure, the Pavenzi children are transported back to Narnia by the sounding of Susan's horn, which would summon them whenever Narnia was in need. They find their stash of weapons and gear in the ruins of their old castle and realize that 1,300 years have passed since their last visit. They meet some creatures who tell them what has happened in Narnia since they've been gone. A group called the Telmarines conquered Narnia long ago, and the reigning king Caspian IX was killed by his brother, Miraz. Caspian's son fled and was aided by some forest creatures. He put an army together to fight the Telmarines and sounded the horn for help when defeat was near. Aslan appears to Lucy and tells the kids what to do. Peter and Edmund find Caspian and save him, stacking bodies along the way, and Peter challenges Miraz to a duel, winner takes all. Peter wins, but the Telmarines call BS, and they launch their attack on Aslan's fortress anyway. Aslan, Lucy, and Susan convince some tree people to fight for Narnia, and they defeat the Telmarines. Afterward, the children are returned to Earth, and Peter and Susan say, I'm gonna head out, as they are now too old to travel to Narnia. Or so you are led to believe. That takes us to book five, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. This might be Dan's favorite, as it is pretty creepy and trippy in some parts. And I, I read it when I was a kid, and I loved. I remember loving it. Yeah, so. it's a very intense, uh, very interesting story. Though it takes place three years after book four, Lucy, Edmund, and their cousin Eustace are tra- teleported to Narnia through a painting of a ship, the Dawn Treader. 
Aboard is Prince Caspian, who has embarked on a quest to sail the seas in search of the seven lost lords of Narnia, who were originally sent to explore the areas beyond the eastern ocean. Throughout their adventure, they free slaves. Eustace's greed for treasure transforms him into a dragon, but Aslam helps him out. They escape a sea serpent, deal with magic invisibility spells, rescue one of the lords from a dark nightmare island, and find three of the lords trapped in a sleeping spell that can only be undone if they travel to the end of the world and leave one crewman behind. They set sail for the edge of the world, eventually reaching water so shallow that the ship runs aground. Caspian volunteers to go ahead, but Aslan appears to him and tells him to let the kids go with their talking rat friend, Reepicheep. They take a dinghy through a sea of lily pads and finally reach an upside-down waterfall. Reepicheep sails up the waterfall into the sky. Caspian awakens the remaining lords and sails back to Narnia and Aslan sends the kids back to Earth, telling Lucy and Edmund they are now too old to return to Narnia. Book 6, The Silver Chair In the penultimate book of the series, Eustace is whisked away from an awful new boarding school to Narnia, along with his newfound friend, Jill Pole. Once there, Aslan tasks them with finding Prince Rillian, son and only heir of Caspian, who disappeared ten years earlier while tracking down a green serpent who killed his mother, the queen. It's been over 50 years since the events of Don Treader and Caspian has set sail once again on an unknown quest, worrying his friends and family. He is basically Joe Biden at this point. The kids travel with their guide, Puddleglum, through harsh weather and run into Lady of the Green Kirtle and her trusty Silent Black Knight. She tells them to go to Harfang. It's great over there. It's the Castle of Giants. You'll get a warm welcome and a hot meal. Have a few laughs. So they go. But the giants try to eat them, of course. So they escape and stumble into the ruins of a lost city, which leads them underground. There they meet the people of Underland, who escort them uh, across a underwater lake to a city ruled by the Lady of the Green Kirtle. They meet her protege, who warns them that he turns into a green serpent if he isn't strapped to a silver chair every night. Weird flex, but okay. The kids watch as the man struggles at night, but when he invokes the name of Aslan and begs to be released, they let him out. They figure they can trust him. The man destroys the chair, which was actually bewitched, and reveals that he is Prince Rillian, held captive by the lady as part of her plot to take over Narnia. The lady returns and transforms into a green serpent. Aha, it was her all along. And uh, the boys kill her, free the Underland people that are bewitched by her magic spells, and they return to Narnia. Caspian and Rillian are reunited. Caspian tragically dies, and Rillian becomes king. Then Aslan returns Eustace and Jill to Earth. Finally, Book 7, The Last Battle. 200 Narnian years after the events of the Silver Chair, an ape named Shift dresses up a donkey in a lion costume and parades him around as Aslan. The people of Kalerman become convinced that fake Aslan is the physical form of their deity Tash, so they begin worshipping him. Shiv convinces the people to start harvesting the living forest for profit. King Tyrion, descendant of Caspian, tries to stop Shiv's plan, but is thwarted and left to die. He prays to Aslan, who brings Jill and Eustace from Earth to save him. In Tyrion's absence, the Kalermans have seized Caer Paravel, Narnia's capital, and defeated the Narnian army defending it with the help of the real Tash, who was summoned into existence through Shiv's trickery. The Kalermans begin sacrificing people to Tash, geez, who swallows them up. Tyrion fights his way to the evil deity and feeds Shift the apes to the hungry Tash. 
Just before being devoured himself, Real Aslan brings Peter, Edmund, Lucy, Diggory, and Polly to Narnia. He doesn't bring Susan because she stopped, quote, believing in Narnia, and she started wearing makeup. That's literally in the story, yeah. And as even as a kid, I read that, and I was like, oh, wait a second. She doesn't get to go to Narnia just because she puts makeup on her face? But, hey, I didn't, I didn't write it. I don't make the rules at C.S. Lewis. So, well, actually, Aslan makes the rules. I'm sorry. <laughs> so then Peter orders Tash to GTFO, and he just disappears. Poof, gone. They ask Aslan to help Narnia heal but he admits that the evil and corruption done there is too great. He judges all the remaining creatures, allowing some to enter Aslan's country, and others to return to normal creatures, or simply vanish. Narnia is consumed or burned by dragons and giant lizards. The seas rise, the stars crash down over the land, and Father Time removes the sun and the moon, freezing Narnia in a permanent frost. Peter locks the gates to Narnia forever, And in Aslan's country, they all reunite with the friends of Narnia from its entire history. There is one last tidbit at the end I won't spoil for Evan, but that's basically the end of the story right there. Now, I wonder what this this book is an allegory to. I can't think of anything that that it would pertain to in real life. Not really. And if it was like an allegory for the end of the the New Testament, what, what would that be? Like Revelation or something? What's at the very end? I guess, but I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. I'd have to read it. Yeah. yeah. It's not very clear what that is an allegory of, if anything. In total, the events of the story span 49 Earth years and roughly 2,500 Narnian years. Not quite the same scale as Lord of the Rings, but pretty close. Okay, moving on to another fictional work, but much smaller. The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce was a fictional work published in 1945, which Lewis described as an, a quote, imaginative supposal, therefore absolving himself from claims of heresy. What a clever man. The narrator, presumably Lewis himself, finds himself in a dreary place he calls the Grey Town. It is full of unpleasant people, and we learn that it is hell. Hell is infinitely large, and the ghosts there, constantly violent and disputing, move further away from each other over time. Some old souls live millions of miles away from the town all by themselves to stew over their lives. Like Napoleon has mentioned, he just like paces back and forth in his mansion all day just alone. Yeah, lo- alone, blaming everybody else for the bad things that happen. Now, Lewis gets in line to a bus with other ghosts who want to try it out. The bus takes them to a heavenly place where everything is bright and full of life. Everything is so real that it literally hurts the ghost to even walk on the grass so-called bright people and reality saints. Each come to meet with a particular ghost. Each saint tries to convince its ghost to renounce its sinful ways, usually pride or certain ways of thinking or other cardinal sins. Each ghost gives its own reasons for not wanting to change or be eternally happy, and each ends up going back to the bus. They prefer themselves as they are, unhappy, then then themselves changed and happy. Now here's Lewis talking in the book. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously or constantly desires joy will ever miss it. It's basically a fictional tale of how people choose misery over heaven. The ghosts are by far the best part of the book because they add so much entertainment value. Here are some of them. 
uh, an Anglican bishop who insists that his free thinking and heresy were honest beliefs and that he shouldn't be penalized for it. He denies the crucifixion and the final judgment. He thinks that even the concept of heaven and hell are not to be taken literally. Very ironic considering his location. He runs a theological society in hell. Then there's a self-respecting ghost who insists that he have his rights. More rights. He punches other ghosts and refuses to forgive those who have wronged him. He doesn't want charity, only his rights. That's all he wants. Man of simple pleasures, I guess. Turns out he has a lot of personal issues. Then there's a capitalist who thinks hell needs tangible goods so that the ghosts will be forced into cooperation due to scarcity. <laughs> uh, that's That guy sounds pretty cool. And then there's a socialist who refuses to accept responsibility for anything. Hmm. He doesn't try in school, mooches on his parents, cheats on his fiance, and can't manage money. In the end, he just commits suicide because he just can't handle all of it. The way he commits suicide in no, hell? Like bef- to go to hell. Oh. Like, like, <laughs> that was the end of his earthly life. Yikes. There's a conspiracy theorist who is never impressed by anything and thinks heaven and hell uh, cooperate just for laws. An artist who just wants to paint, then leaves when he's told nobody on earth even knows him anymore. (laughs) Ouch. There's a woman who tormented her husband his whole life and insists that he needs her. He made it to heaven after dying from mental illness. And then there's a mother who uh, wants her son, who's in heaven, to come down to hell with her so she can have him. (laughs) A habitual complainer and more. It's a pretty funny book. You ought to read it. I I should. I, I think I will. Yeah. Okay, now the screw tape letters and screw tape proposes a toast. Screw tape letters is another fictional work published in 1942 where a supposed dialogue between two demons is intercepted. The demons try to figure out how to best tempt one of their targets and get him to abandon his faith. In a series of letters, elder tempter screw tape writes to his nephew, junior inexperienced tempter Wormwood, to give him tips and reprimands on how to do his job better. We only read letters from Screwtape to his nephew, but he always responds to points Wormwood made in his unseen letters. God is referred to as, quote, the enemy. Satan is our father below. And there are a number of other inversions of Christian terminology, such as the lowerarchy instead of the hierarchy. I especially like that one. That's yeah. very clever. Lewis gives a prologue where he refuses to divulge how he came across this communication and leaves it up to the reader to decide how much of Screwtape's letters are deception. He reminds us that devils are liars. And that's a very important point that what's said throughout the letters could even be just not even true at all. So we have to take it with a grain of salt. Like what? when is he lying and, give, and just trying to deceive and when is he giving true advice to his tempter? That is a super cool literary trick right there. I really like that. I dig that. The man was extremely smart. Got to give him that. C.S. Lewis really knew how to write. The letters concern a young Englishman, only known as the patient, whom Wormwood is responsible for tempting. Early on, the patient converts to Christianity, but retains many of his old sins and gains some pride over his new state. He looks down on his fellow prisoners. Screwtape gives Wormwood tips on how to capitalize on the patient's bad tendencies and mitigate his good ones. For example, the patient enters a circle of intellectuals who don't take religion seriously and exude an air of condescending intellectual superiority. However, he sees his pride and repents. He joins a group of serious Christians and falls in love with a girl. Wormwood and her demon collaborate to get them to fall into sin or at least build up resentment that may be useful later on. Hitler has started bombing London and wartime measures begin. 
The patient, who avoided sins, gets killed by a bomb and carried into heaven. Wormwood is punished voraciously for his failures. He's given out a feast. He's like the the food. Oh, ouch. I wouldn't want that uh, as my punishment, that's for sure. The devils are noted for their complete self-centeredness and competitive natures. They see power as the only thing that's worth striving after. They don't understand love or virtue and accuse God and humans of bad motives. Reminds me of progressives. Ooh, interesting uh, observation there. I assert that the screw tape letters didn't quite meet my expectations, though they were high expectations. It was pretty good, but at times it did not seem realistic to be coming from a devil. Because it is hard to write, like, purely from a demonic standpoint when you're not a demon. That's what the demons want you to think. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Screwtape's descriptions of God and his will seem like they came from a Christian apologist rather than a demon. So there's some downsides to writing it in that format. I expected more outright deception, but Screwtape admits that God wills the good of humans and stuff like that. Although it's funny, like the... The police come to Screwtape's door, like after he writes that letter, saying like, "Or did you really say that?" And then he he talks his way out of like getting tortured for saying that. Oh, the hell police! Yeah. Oh, I see. And it's useful from an apologetic point of view, but it reduced the quality of the work. I'd say. I listened to an adaptation by Father Dwight Longenecker called "The Gargoyle Code" and thought it was really good. So lots of people have done, like, similar in inspiration due to that book. So, Screwtape Proposes a Toast was a short sequel to the Screwtape Letters published in 1959. I personally think this sequel is far superior to its predecessor. Screwtape gives a commencement address at the Tempter College in Hell, speaking about the state of the modern world. They just, they're graduating from being trained in how to properly tempt humans. Yeah. Yeah. Screwtape begins, Mr. Principal, your eminence, your disgraces, my thorns, shadies, and gentle devils. Screwtape laments the lack of really tasty sinners, a.k.a. insanely bad people, but points out that the number of damn souls is increasing. They're just not as... They're just more like, eh. Yeah, they're just like run-of-the-mill sinners. They're not like the cream of the crop, really bad dudes. Screwtape celebrates the disappearance of the middle class, the dumbing down of education, which will all be public one day, mass conformity and lack of individualization, and democratization a.k.a. bringing everyone down to a low bar. Democracy isn't especially helpful for hell. It's not, it's not good or bad, it's just like neutral for them. But democratic ideals are helpful for hell, where everyone is envious and expected to conform to a base level of ignorance and apathy. Screwtape thinks the future will be good for the devils. Wow. It was a very... It was Prophetic. Based, it was based, especially when he was... He went off on public education like for quite a while, like pages... Wow. It was <laughs> How long is the uh is his commencement speech there? It's probably like 30 pages or so. Wow. I uh, I'm going to have to read that for sure. It was great. Here are some other works by Lewis. Mere Christianity is probably Lewis's most popular work of nonfiction and his magnum opus for Christian apologetics. It stems from a series of BBC radio talks given in wartime from 41 to 44. What's amazing is to think that the government commissioned a long series on why you should be a Christian only 80 years ago. That would never, no. ever exist in England, on the BBC, in today's world. No. It would be instead why you should be a gay, black, trans, uh, Muslim, feline kin, non-binary, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. 
even though England's official religion is still Anglicanism. You know. That'll change soon. Yeah. Guaranteed. For real. How things have changed. It's a dense book that you should read yourself. To summarize, Lewis makes the case for God's existence using the argument from morality, uh, monotheism, the divinity of Jesus, and Christian ethics. The Problem of Pain, published in 1940, seeks to explain why pain and hell are not good reasons to reject the Christian conception of God. The Abolition of Man, published in 1943, is a work which argues for objective morality through natural law against moral subjectivism. Real goodness and beauty exist. Goodness and beauty are not just our subjective feelings to things. Subjectivism duels people's sense of the good. Nobody lives as a real subjectivist. Ancient thinkers believed education was meant to train children in virtue, not just teach them trivia. There has existed a set of values among every culture, which Lewis refers to as the Tao. If natural law is eliminated from our societies, we will only produce, quote, men without chess. It actually doesn't have to do with weightlifting, although that's a good thing to add. Read the Art of Manliness article in the show notes for a good read on this concept. We won't go too deep into it. But here's a quote from the book. We take men without chess and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldlings be fruitful. This Surprised by Joy is a partial autobiography published in uh, 1955. It shows his life and how he came to convert to Christianity. There are others, but these are his major works. What was the impact that C.S. Lewis had on our modern culture and on Christianity? Lewis was arguably the most popular Christian thinker of the 20th century. He is a household name, at least for his Narnia series, but also for his apologetics. His conversion from an atheist to a Christian makes him a relatable author to our modern world. He is colloquially known as the apostle to the skeptics, and mere Christianity is framed as a series of rational arguments for Christianity. He valued reason over mere faith. C.S. Lewis is one of those rare religious writers who is quoted extensively by people of all Christian denominations. He wrote Mere Christianity as a general Christian apologetics book without delving into interdenominational disputes, and he disliked debating other denominations. Despite being an Anglican, he even comes up in Catholic homilies from time to time. Although it must be said that Protestants promote and read him more than Catholics. Uh, They love that guy, for good reason. He had some Catholic-esque opinions, such as uh, purgatory, but it's not enough to repel most Protestants. He popularized the trilemma argument, which challenged the idea that Jesus was just a good moral teacher, a condescending opinion, if you ask me. He argued that since Jesus made claims to be God, he was either a liar, lunatic, or Lord. Either he knew he was, wasn't God and lied to everybody, he thought he was God but was suffering from delusions, or he was actually God. Good people don't lie about who they are, and good teachers are not maniacs. Hmm. So what are some other alternatives to uh, this argument? Well, Lewis thought it was a trilemma, like there were only three options. But uh, in my opinion, there is a fourth legend Okay. saying if you dismiss the b- biblical account of Jesus and say it's not accurate, say it's actually like just some, I don't know, someone coming up with stuff that wasn't actually said. Fan fiction. Essentially, I guess. But here's what I would say to that, and that um, I think if you accept the Bible as an accurate, if you accept the Gospels as an accurate depiction of Jesus, in my opinion, it's pretty clear that he makes claims to divinity, especially in the book of John. 
So I, I would say you'd have to say the Bible's account is false in order to claim the legend part. Interesting. Let me ask you this. Was he applying this argument to other Christians, or was this just uh, an example of an argument that he would give to people who are skeptics? Mostly skeptics because, you know, a lot of non-Christians will say nice things like Jesus was a good moral teacher, you know, meaning he wasn't God, but he said some good things. And, and he, he was a good person. And he was a good person saying, yeah, he's saying like good people don't lie about being God and good moral teachers aren't maniacs. Yes. Yeah, so the so. only alternative would be that he is a Lord. He really was being honest. Like he, he can't be both a good moral teacher and also lie to your face or be crazy. Yeah. I see. I see. Lewis was an advocate of natural law and universal morality. This stands in stark contract to the modern relativism we suffer from. So what are our favorite works? Uh, for me, having only read the Narnia series, I will pick my favorite from those seven. Uh, Don Treader is probably my favorite of the entire series. It's a nice departure from the other books, a sea voyage as opposed to a journey over land. And there's no big war or battle, but instead it's a search for lost men. It has a familiar set of characters, the two Pavenzi kids, plus Eustace and Caspian, who's on the, the boat with them. Eustace is a new character, but he goes through some serious character development, which ends up making him a better person and a much more likable character, especially in the next uh, books. There's also a lot of mystery surrounding the voyage, which keeps you in suspense. The best part of the book, in my opinion, one that a uh, part that really stands out when I think of the book, like this is the scene that I always envision, is the section with the uh, island called The Island Where Dreams Come True. The crew approaches an area of the sea that grows darker, like a train tunnel, and they debate turning back. But when they decide to enter, they sail through complete blackness for an unknown amount of time. And if you think about it, without any stars, without the rise of the sun and the moon, without anything to tell you, they didn't have watches, obviously, this is Narnia, so without anything to tell you what time it is, how could you really know how long you were in there? You know, one minute is really no different than an hour in complete, total blackness. Very disturbing to think about. But then as they sail on into this darkness, uh, they come across a man. They pick him up and he warns them, get out of there because this is the place where dreams come true. Any dreams come true, even nightmares. And so they all start hallucinating that their wildest and scariest dreams are all coming true. Very, very creepy, very disturbing idea. But ultimately, this portion of the story shows how faith and prayer can get people through even their worst fears. Because near the end, when everybody's kind of going crazy, Lucy, I believe, uh, prays that Aslan will help them out, send them a sign. And he does. And they follow that sign and they escape the blackness. And when they turn back, it's gone. So all they had to do was have a little faith. That's profound. I'm really looking forward to reading book five. Yeah, it's very cool. So I'd say I love The Great Divorce and Screwtape Proposes a Toast. They are entertaining to read yet full of meaning. I'm currently going through the Chronicles of Narnia series, but I've only read the first three. I want to reread Mirror Christianity as it went over my head five or so years ago. I want to slowly read his nonfiction works as well. I look forward to reading the Narnia series with my daughter as she gets older, and that's why I have them. Yes, there are very few other series that I would recommend to a young person, uh, you know, to someone who wants to read to their kids or a kid who just starts reading. Man, when I read those books in elementary school, I was just blown away by the Narnia series. So it's definitely 
uh, a 10 out of 10 wouldn't recommend for me. All right. So what are the takeaways today? First off, C.S. Lewis left behind a legacy of wonder, adventure, and a love for theology. He and Tolkien were hashtag friendship goals at their best. Though he lost his faith for a significant portion of his life, Lewis returned to the Christian faith and ended up doing more to promote Christianity than many of his, of his contemporaries. Read Narnia to your kids, just like I said. Do it. They will thank you when they are older and realize how based you were. His works are great for all people of all ages. Everyone can get something out of them, even adults. And what are our lingering questions, you may ask? Here's one for you. Who are some modern literary counterparts to Lewis? Do they even come close? Or was Lewis a product of his age, often imitated but never duplicated? Evan, what do you think? I don't know of any Christian authors nowadays, like like Christian fiction authors. I know like Joel Osteen and stuff. but <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, come on. Yeah. I'm actually kind of ashamed that you name-dropped him on this podcast. I might have to just scrub that out. Joel Austin, give me a break. But uh, what about the guys who wrote uh, Left Behind? I don't know anything about that, but maybe they could be some counterpart. I don't know if that's any good or not. I've I've heard people talk about it, uh, not in nearly the same context as C.S. Lewis, but, I mean, it is a pretty long series, so I'll at least give it that. Like, I think there's over 12 books in the series. Catholics don't believe in the rapture, so we don't read it. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm, we'll have to come back to that maybe uh, on another episode. Were the Narnia books too allegorical, too, quote, on the nose? In some, uh, in some instances, yes. In others, no. I think he did a good job being more subtle in other works. It's just Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, the whole crucifixion thing, that, that's a little bit too on the nose, in my opinion. The rest, I think are not so bad. Yeah, the first book was kind of getting close to it with the Genesis account. Yeah, that but, too. But it was entertaining enough and not so not so direct that it made me angry. Yeah, and it's hard it's hard to tell an origin story for like a for any kind of fantasy that isn't going to be like the biblical account of the existence of our universe. You know what I'm saying? Like okay, you got to create everything. All right. Well, that's kind of an unoriginal story. You know, like everybody has a creation myth. Creation is creation is creation. So he couldn't really avoid it in that, I don't think. I think he did a good job of it. I think so. Uh, Did Lewis commit heresy in The Great Divorce? If he hadn't done the intro part, I would say yes, definitely. By by saying that, uh, well, what part of it was heresy, do you think, if he hadn't had that part in the middle, in in the beginning? By saying that people in hell can go to heaven. Oh, yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think about that. I, I was thinking, this is my rube, foolish brain here. I was just thinking that his depiction of it as a ghost town was, and not as like a fire pit. No, no, was that's, what was that's strong. not heresy whatsoever. Oh, okay. But it was just the fact that he showed some people from hell being able to possibly go to heaven. Yeah, like they were taking... They were taken on a ride up to what was like either pur- – it was probably purgatory because they have to walk on the grass. It like hurts the ghosts a lot to walk on the grass. They're tiny and it's like cutting into their feet and stuff. Oh. But as they go on, it becomes easier and easier. Yeah, just the whole – like they, there's a possibility of damned souls to go to heaven. You could say maybe uh, the gray town was kind of like purgatory if you want it to be. But nobody chose. No, but that's not true because everyone who goes to purgatory ends up going to heaven at some point. Really? Yeah. Purgatory is like a temporary place and you can only go up. Oh, okay. So you can't 
go to hell after purgatory? No. Really? So you can't just get there and be like, I know this is like my trial period, but F this place, I'm going to hell. No. Oh, I didn't know that. You can only go up from purgatory, and once you're in hell, you can't get out. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, can you spend a long, long time in purgatory? Well, time doesn't really work the same way in the afterlife, but I would imagine it could feel like thousands of years if you just like are slow it. to repent. Yeah. Slow to if you're slow to change. get rid of your bad tendencies. It's like you have to be perfect before you go to heaven. So it's like, by the way, you really need to read Dante's Purgatory. It's uh, it's do. probably the most underrated. I mean, it's definitely the most underrated of Dante's comedy. Yes. Everyone everyone knows about hell. Hell's good. Okay. I mean, like, the book is good. <laughs> this just in. Evan said, <laughs> hell is good. The Inferno is good. Uh, Purgatory is actually really good, too. So check it out. All right. We'll check it out. So are you interested in reading any of his nonfiction or nah? You're, inter- you're asking I'm asking me. you. Yes, absolutely. I, from what you said about... Uh, the screw tape letters, this, especially the second one where he's addressing the crowd, that seemed like that was right up my alley. I definitely would check that one out. And I also was very interested in just his, his I don't remember which one it was, his discussions on uh, on Christianity with the BBC. What was that one? Mere Christianity. Yeah I, yeah, I would definitely check that one out, if only just for a piece of history that, you know, the BBC will never repeat ever again. Well, you can borrow it from me if you want. I have it. All right. I think I will do that. That is all for today's show. Join us again next time for even more ancient wisdom.